The New Testament reading and the sermon text is from the Gospel of Mark as we continue to read and study Mark on Sunday mornings. It is chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are a mighty man of war. You save your people from their enemies. You save us from your sins. You plant the people in a good place. Lord, we desire to know you. Jesus, we desire to be taught by you this morning and pray you would do so through your word. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week, my daughter ran downstairs while I was working to tell me this quote. If the cuckoo doesn't sing, I'll kill it. This saying was attributed to one of the shogun leaders who was so mighty he was able to unify the islands of Japan. Um, She was fascinated by this period of history. Obviously, it's a time steeped in tradition, legend, kind of austere, maybe stoic beauty, and brutal violence, which is what this quote is getting at. She was scandalized by the way the leaders in this shogun period would consolidate their power through violence, killing any rival to the throne. And this leader was known as so brutal, he would even kill the songbird if it didn't sing for him. And I had to tell her, well, that's not actually unique to Japan. Monarchs who come to the throne regularly would kill any threat to their authority or their kingdom. Maybe you can think of brutal emperors like Nero killing his own family, even his own mother, to ensure he'd retain power. Of course, this isn't limited to the ancient world. Many British monarchs killed cousins, family members, to retain power. And if you know anything about the Soviet Union, murders, political murders for power was regular. The Bible is filled with stories like this. Herod, learning the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. What does he do? He responds like Pharaoh, trying to kill all the young boys in the kingdom. Saul hunts David to kill him most of his life. And even Solomon, a good king, when he succeeds his father David, starts his reign killing those who opposed his reign. This was normal throughout most of history. And modern Americans, we take for granted a peaceful transfer of power. 
But this is really still an experiment. Historically, you would not get political power without murder. Because what is true even to today, the status quo and those in power always resist change. And so we need to keep this in mind because when Jesus shows up and begins announcing a new kingdom, everyone committed to the status quo in Israel recognizes him as a threat. Our text starts, John is arrested preaching, saying Jesus is coming. The rest of the Gospels, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, follow Jesus around, criticizing him and opposing him. And in fact, we all know that Jesus Christ is put on a cross because he was viewed as a threat to the Jewish and Roman leaders. This is because it's true. The arrival of Jesus' kingdom will not leave the status quo alone. Most of us probably aren't aware how committed we are to the status quo. Because the truth is, even if interest rates are pretty high, even if inflation is at an all-time high, realistically, we are very comfortable with how things are. But we love Jesus, right? Of course, we just don't want him to upset the apple cart. I want Christianity, it's just not supposed to meddle with my relationships, the way I parent, and the way I choose to personally relation, relate to God. But Jesus came announcing the arrival of a kingdom and calling disciples into that kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom has the same authority today. And it calls you to switch your allegiance to him and examine our lives if we have any divided allegiances. So we will show our allegiance to Christ by responding to his preaching and following him as disciples. Again, if we don't keep in mind what the text says Jesus was preaching, we will easily miss this is a kingdom story. Every good kingdom needs a founding myth. And by myth, I don't mean something untrue. The Oxford Dictionary defines myth as a traditional story, especially one of the early history of a people, typically involving the supernatural. So it's interesting, again, by its definition, a myth can be true or not. And when a myth is not true, we actually have another word for that. It's called a legend. We might say every kingdom needs a founding myth, true or not. It needs a story to justify its existence, why we should follow it, and where it gets its authority from. In the ancient world, and maybe you are today, everyone was familiar with Rome's founding myth. According to Roman legend, Rome was founded by two twin brothers, Romulus and Remus. They were the sons of a god, much like Hercules. And knowing the threat these two infants were, the ruling king at that time threw them in a river to kill them. But they were rescued by, as the legend goes, a she-wolf who nursed them and raised them. They became fierce leaders of a band of young, adventurous men. And eventually they decided to found a town on the banks of the river where they were saved. However, in the building of the walls, there was a dispute between the brothers, and Romulus killed his brother and named the city after himself, Rome. This would be the example of a founding myth as a legend, right? Not true. 
But America has a founding myth, too. America was born when 56 men band together to pledge their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honors for the sake of the defense of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness when they signed the Declaration of Independence. Again, you can see how this kind of story is meant to be an ideal. It's meant to be powerful. It's meant to tell you what's true and important about America. Christ's founding myth of his kingdom is no different, but it's very different. It's not a kingdom story like we find at the founding of Rome or America, because it's not the kind of kingdom we or anyone in Jesus' day were expecting. The story really cues us into something unusual happening, even in the first verse. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Each phrase in this sentence is weird. First, the timing of Jesus' ministry begins with John's arrest. John has been preaching, the mighty one is coming. He's stronger than me. He is your savior. And when he shows up, John is arrested. It seems like this king is going to come and there's still going to be suffering for his people. This age of victory is apparently going to look a lot different than we assumed. Second, Jesus comes into Galilee. This is a really odd place. Last week I called it the Elk Mound of Israel, and I stand by that. If Jesus is the king... What's he doing in Galilee? Why isn't he going to where the temple is? Why isn't he going to where a king belongs in Jerusalem? In fact, he's starting in a place known for its non-Jewish identity, where they mix with all the nations. So he's in the wrong place. And, And third, if Jesus Christ is the rightful king, the son of David, what is he doing? He's not fighting a giant. He's not raising an army. I mean, everyone in Israel knew they needed the Messiah. They understood they were in trouble. They hated Rome's rule of them. The Pharisees all knew how immoral and lost most of their nation was. They needed a Messiah who could come and judge the corrupt leaders and promote their traditions so that they could be a shining beacon again. And all of Israel wanted that King David who could lead heavenly armies against their enemies again. And Jesus comes, not with a heavenly army, not leading a revolutionary uprising, but preaching the gospel of God. Jesus' kingdom is founded on a message. So again, It's not that Jesus' kingdom doesn't have authority, it doesn't have power. It's that he establishes his kingdom very differently. It is, again, hard for us to conceive of because we think of power in terms of human might, human possibility. But that is not how Jesus chooses to work. And so verse 15, though, again, makes it clear we are telling a kingdom story because it summarizes his teaching as, The kingdom of God is at hand, right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what is the kingdom of God? A few questions I ask when we do our Mark studies with people, do I get 
the most blank stares. Most generally, the kingdom of God refers to the rule of God. God is the creator of the world and has authority over all creation. I mean, he's the creator. He has no equal in authority. No one gets to question him, and no one is equal in his power. Right? In Exodus, he mocks gods, he destroys armies, he does what he pleases. But the New Testament uses this term, kingdom of God, to describe God working in the world in a specific way. It is God using his sovereign power to save. And it makes sense, because before sin, creation perfectly manifested God's kingdom. Everything lived under his rule, everything was as he intended it. But after sin, something changed when humanity rebelled. Of course, God never stopped being the rightful king over all things, but much of it was distorted by sin, though. And so God began manifesting his power, his authority, by saving from sin and evil. And the great expectation of the Messiah is that this is what he would do in history. And Jesus says, that time has come. It's time for God to step into human history. And Jesus announces this event. It's happening now. Jesus doesn't come and preach primarily a moral system, religious beliefs you need to have. He preaches news. He preaches something happening in history. His message of salvation is not based on living according to any certain philosophy, let alone the law. It's based on something happening now in history that will change everything. We are saved because of events. The events of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It is because in these events, Jesus' reign and rule begin. But Christ's kingdom begins in a world full of competing kingdoms. There is one rightful king, but there are many rebels attempting a coup. This is the world as we find it right now. Christ's kingdom has entered the world. And he has claim over every square inch. But there are still enemies in the land. Nations still exist in rebellion to the king. But Jesus' kingdom is advancing and it cannot be stopped. And it will continue to advance until Jesus' kingship on earth matches his reign in heaven. And now, as it did when Christ was on earth, it advances by a message. So it advances when you pray for your neighbor in Jesus' name. It advances when you read the Bible with your children or invite a friend to church. It advances through the message. And this king has a message for every rebel outside of his kingdom. Jesus preached this message in Israel, and it is the message that the Chippewa Valley needs to hear today. The king says, rebels, come home. You've lived apart from the kingdom long enough. And I will take you back. Jesus, the king who has the right to demand your submission, has the power to save you. He promises forgiveness for rebellion, for all who return. He has a place for you in his kingdom. Rebels, come home. 
And his message, as you can see, inherently demands a response. Because you never hear a new king announced like this. So-and-so has been born, he is now the king. If it pleases you, would you consider making him king? That's not how kings are announced. Jesus isn't asking for permission to be king either. He isn't asking for your vote, though lots of people will soon. He's announcing my reign is starting now. And his reign calls for your repentance and faith. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same response to Jesus. Repentance tells us what we are turning from. Belief, faith, tells us what we are turning to. Jesus proclaimed repentance because people were looking the wrong way for where the kingdom would come from. Quite literally, they were looking the wrong way. They were looking in Jerusalem. They were looking for an army. And they needed to turn around. They needed to change their mind. Otherwise, God's kingdom would be invisible to them. And then Jesus called them to make a bet and trust that God's power was at work in him and his message. Uh, Jesus was asking people to believe that what he is doing is precisely what the world needed most. And repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance is often an unpopular term, and it's because people uh, disconnected from faith. So people think of repentance as trying to feel bad enough so you'll feel sorry. Or repentance means trying even harder to be good. No, repentance comes with faith. It means turning from anything that would keep you from Jesus. It's not about doing better primarily or becoming a good little boy or girl. It's a call to switch your allegiance to Jesus. Likewise, there is no real belief in the good news without repentance. It's a false idea to say trusting Jesus doesn't really require to change or turn from anything. Why? Because this is a denial that Jesus is really a king with all authority. Because I just get him on my terms. Jesus, in this way, would be more like a genie granting wishes instead of a king. So, faith is what you turn to, repentance is what you turn from, and this is how you join his kingdom. Submission to God and trust in his plan for all things. This also offers us advice, because just like in Jesus' day, it often is hard to feel like I'm part of a new kingdom. Well, if Jesus brings his kingdom through preaching... And if we want a more real experience with his kingdom in our lives, then we should respond to the preaching that we hear. This will begin to make the kingdom a concrete part of your life because you will no longer listen to sermons to see if they're interesting or the speaker is entertaining because no matter how good they are, if they're faithful to God's word, they are the place where Jesus Christ is working. He is establishing a kingdom by preaching. And the only way to enter is by responding to him faith and repentance. The second part of the founding myth of Jesus' kingdom is one, in fact, we tell this way. Jesus choosing his disciples. 
Jesus' call of the fishermen display his authority as a king. It shows why he calls disciples into his kingdom to serve him. And again, that we must respond to this call. First, Jesus, the rightful king, extends his kingdom by calling disciples to himself. Jesus, the king of kings, starts his rule by walking along the seashore, talking to fishermen. Jesus doesn't call disciples in the way, again, anyone expected. He doesn't work like the other Jewish rabbis in the first century. Jesus approaches the fishermen and simply says, come, follow me. The other Jewish rabbis did not call people this way. They certainly did call disciples, um, but they, one, never said, come, follow me. They said, come, learn Torah from me, meaning come, learn how I interpret Moses. And they weren't just calling anyone. They called the people who proved themselves to be worthy students. You had to show you had ability in theology. You had to show you were an able lawyer, right? A student of the law. Which obviously, Peter, Andrew, James, and John did not. Why? They're fishermen. They're not rabbinic students. Jesus' call should strike us because... Even the Old Testament prophets did not command the people, come, follow me. They said, come, go, follow God. But Jesus says, come, follow me. And he doesn't offer them any evidence to do so. He doesn't do miracles. He doesn't have a discussion to persuade them or do anything to convince them. He simply says, come, follow me on his own authority. Jesus is exercising the authority of a king. And these brothers, the ones he calls, are very different from each other, even though they're both fishermen. Simon and Andrew, it says, are casting their nets from the shore when Jesus finds them. James and John are mending their nets in their boat um, near their father. This term, mending their nets, isn't like fixing problems. They're preparing them. Based on the evidence we have, apparently Simon and Andrew are too poor to have a boat. So they have to fish from the shore. But James and John evidently have a much higher scale business. They have hired hands. They have a boat. Right? They're inheriting a family business from their father. But both of them receive the exact same call, exact same terms. Come, follow me. Jesus has the same authority, whoever you are. Jesus has the same authority for the rich and the poor, for men and women, young and old. Jesus has the same authority today as he did then. And his authority and demand for discipleship comes to everyone. And Jesus calls his disciples for what? Service in the kingdom. Again, service of Christ is not something for some. It's for anyone who would be made his disciple. Jesus calls them and says, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, in this glimpse, we get, a, we get a glimpse of the bigness of what Jesus is coming to do. His kingdom, again, probably seemed very small in the beginning, but it has a universal scope. His target is every nation and all generations. His rule is going to carry on beyond his earthly life. So, he, from the beginning, plans that his preaching will be carried on by others.
And this is good news for us because it shows that the gospel is for you. Jesus' preaching and power was not something limited to those who saw him. This wasn't good news for Galilee, that there had become a great healer that would help them for a little while. This wasn't news just for Israel about their king. Christ calls disciples fishers of men because he has a global mission. Christ called disciples because they needed to go to the nations. They needed to carry the work on beyond his lifetime. So he has apprentices to man his nets with him. They are going to draw the nations out of darkness into light. They will bring them into the church. They will compel people to come in that they may not die under judgment. And Jesus meant this message to be heard through the world because his message has power in all the world. Jesus meant you to hear this message today because Jesus' rule and blessings can come to you 2,000 years later, thousands of miles from where it began. And any today who may lack purpose, there is challenge and opportunity in Christ's kingdoms. Hobbies and careers cannot guarantee or offer what service to Christ can. Jesus has work for you. But for a second, I do want to speak. We have a few young men with us who are considering ministry, would desire to go into ministry. I want to speak to them. Never forget the first title Jesus gives to a minister. Jesus calls them to be fishers of men long before he called them apostles or pastors, elders, deacons, church planters, or missionaries. So if there is one title you should aspire to beyond all others, it would be being a fisher of men. A seminary can give you a degree. Churches are always hiring pastors and staff. People start Christian ministries all the time, but Jesus makes fishers of men. This is worth aspiring to. This is a call worth seeking. And it should be all of our earnest prayer that God will raise up some fishers of men here. Finally, just like his preaching, his call demands a response. We need to stop what we're doing and follow him. Jesus' call to discipleship starts right in their world. Jesus goes out to initiate fellowship with them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him at the temple. He's not waiting in some holy place. He shows up in their lives where they're working. He meets them in their own life. And that's where your discipleship starts too. Today I am looking at parents and college students and stay-at-home moms and working adults, um, one elder, grandparents, and lots of kids. Some of you have a lot of knowledge of the Bible. Some of you have much less. You may be new to walking to Christ, or maybe today you're deeply struggling with something. But Christ's call to discipleship comes to you right where you are. Jesus says to you today, you can be my apprentice. I will make you my disciple through baptism. You will eat with me at the Lord's Supper, and I will teach you to obey. You will be with me, and I will show you how to be useful to me in my kingdom. Children, 
There we go. I love seeing their eyes. Jesus can make you his student too. Jesus loves you and wants you to learn from him. If you can ride a bike, if you can learn to read or catch a ball, Jesus can teach you to pray. Jesus can teach you at Sunday school. And if you try to listen in church, I promise Jesus will teach you. And you know what? It's okay if you don't understand everything and it's boring sometimes. Because Jesus loves you as a kid. And he'll teach you. This kind of open call to discipleship has a sweetness, doesn't it? But we cannot overlook that it comes with a cost. Peter and Andrew leave behind their nets. James and John leave their father with his family business to follow Jesus. Now, they don't leave their nets or boats or families because there's anything wrong with those things. In fact, those are all good things. But they leave them because we must leave anything behind that would prevent us from following Christ. This is actually the pain of the fact that Jesus' discipleship starts right where you are. Because that means repentance starts right where you are today. You will feel the cost right away. Because that means whatever is unyielded to Christ in your life is the precise thing you must give over to Jesus. You cannot hold on to anything, good or bad. You cannot hold on to your time, your money, your life. Your discipleship starts with what you do every day. Your discipleship starts with how you use your time, with what it means to be a man or woman in Christ. Your discipleship starts in your relationships. It may change how your relationships work, who you have to forgive. Your discipleship starts with unconfessed sin. It could start with responding to this sermon. Parents, your discipleship starts with what you do with your kids. And kids, your discipleship starts with honoring your mom and dad. Students, your discipleship starts with the kind of student you are and the lifestyle you choose to live at university. And for you personally, whoever you are, it probably starts with whatever the biggest pain point is right now. Whatever you don't want to give over to Jesus or whatever you're hiding, this is the precise point of your discipleship, your apprenticeship by Jesus. Because Christ is calling you from anything that would divide your allegiance from him. Because there is one way Jesus is very much like the other kings I've talked about. He does not tolerate treason. You don't get to have divided allegiances. You must leave those to follow him. But unlike all other kings, he will forgive all who come home. And when your discipleship starts, I want you to know it may be discouraging. Your life may not look very different the next day. You may struggle with the same things. It may feel the same. You have the same problems. It may seem worse. But everything is different because you've turned around. Now, you've only taken one step in that direction, but you've turned around. The direction for everything has changed. You're going the other way. 
It could be a long road, and there may be tears, but you're heading towards Jesus and his kingdom. The response of the fishermen often confuses us, and it confuses actually the commentators who write about the Bible professionally. They're trying to explain why tradesmen would abandon everything to follow a traveling rabbi. You see, they have no discussion here. They just go. So many commentaries speculate about the reasons why. Well, probably they had some background with Jesus. Maybe they grew up with him. Maybe they were disciples of John, so they were ready to follow Jesus because John had told them to. Or maybe, since they were from Galilee, they knew about his preaching and they were hoping he would choose them. There is another suggestion that I am persuaded by. The author wants their response to surprise you because it is a true founding myth, and it's a powerful one. Because unlike other kingdoms that found their kingdoms with armies and wars and money and industry and politics, this kingdom is founded by a far superior power. It's founded on the words of Jesus alone. The disciples leave everything because Jesus' words can create the obedience he demands. Hearing Jesus' voice is all they needed. Think about Jesus' voice. He can speak and cast out demons. He can speak to the wind and it does what he says. Jesus tells a little girl to get up, not because she'd fallen down, but because she was dead. And she listened. Jesus commands demons, sickness, and nature in the same way he makes you his disciple. He speaks. And if his word can give the dead life, his call is all you need to become a disciple. You don't need anything else. It's not by your own power or your own worthiness. And that's why it's good news. Because it's a power worth believing in. Because today, if you respond to Jesus, if you surrender your life to him, if you trust him with your soul, if you stake your life on his words, you will be saved. Amen. That's good news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that we will all respond to his words and take up his call and be disciples. We pray that we will leave anything holding us back. God, we pray you will make our church one that is full of fishers of men. Help us, Lord. We are weak. We need Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.